if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Philippi and, and to us. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Would you, you pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and that you might grant us understanding in this, this most difficult of, of topics. Uh, please bless us to that, name, in, to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm going to start with a story. When I was doing uh, some studies in, in Kentucky, I had moved my family across country and quit my job and all of that. So I, I, I was kind of all in. And, and, and I went through two years of school. And, and it came time to start studying for the, the comprehensive exams, which was the necessary path in order to get this degree that I was looking for. It was going to be three six-hour tests over different areas of study on three days and and. And so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling some anxiety about this, and, and I went to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with my advisor, Bruce Ware, and I, I was probably just expressing typical pre-exam nervousness. But I went to him for some advice and some encouragement, and, and finally I cut to the chase and I say, what, <laughs> what, what happens if I fail these exams? And, and he looked at me, not with compassion, but with sternness, and he just looks at me and he said, Todd, you will pass. And inside I'm thinking, that's not very helpful. <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you mean by that? And I, 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 don't, I don't know what you mean. And he just looked at me again even more intently, and he just says, Todd, you will pass. Now, at that moment, I'm glad he's not going all Gandalf out on me, right? You shall not pass, right? But, but it's still, and, and, and so, 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 I, so I said what I'd been thinking before. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that, like, you know that I'm going to do what it takes in order to pass? Or are you saying, regardless, Todd, you're going to pass? And he said, Todd, you will pass these exams. And so I walked away. <laughs> uh, kind of encouraged, kind of resolved. Um, anyway, the effort that I expended on those exams was life altering, probably because of the number of years it took off my life to prepare for them. And, and you might think, well, so like, was it worth it? Wasn't it the hard that, that made it worthwhile? And I would say, no, not really. I would have been happy to not have actually gone through those. I don't look back on that time fondly, but it did teach me something. And so, so here's the main talk of the, the, the main point of my talk this morning. And it's this Christian, you must persevere. You will persevere. You must persevere. You will persevere. We have heard of the uh, necessity of conversion from Michael. He 
And then Mike spoke of the crucial importance of, of God's work in conversion. Thomas reminded us that biblically, God is the one who regenerates, but, but we're active in our conversion. And this is accomplished through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But then the question is, well, what then? What about like for the rest of my life? Are, are, are we left to go our own way once God has done the heavy lifting of regenerating, adopting, setting apart, sending his spirit? These are all things he does. There are things that we don't do. Thomas rightly said we're passive in those. What, what role does the church play in the life of a believer once conversion takes place? And so this lands us in this doctrinal issue called perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. I'm, I'm going to nuance that a little bit by saying, yeah, it's perseverance of saints, but thankfully it's perseverance of God as well. The perseverance, that we persevere in our salvation. We go to the end. We cross the finish line. But God perseveres every step along the way with us. God is the one who carries us and takes us to that end. So, so perseverance often is synonymous with eternal security. Assurance of salvation comes out of that. There will be a talk on that. I think it's the last one, which is a great one to end this, uh, this conference on. Perseverance teaches us that, that those who are truly regenerate, those who are in real union with Christ, they will not lose their salvation. And, and, you know, lose your salvation is such an odd thing to say. Like, you know, I, I routinely lose things. I misplace things. You don't lose your salvation that way. You don't misplace salvation. It's, is it possible that I could be regenerated, born again, and then end up not entering into eternal life? And the doctrine of perseverance that, that I'm going to uh, walk us through here says no, that that, that is impossible. Uh, why is that? Because I think that assurance of salvation and perseverance, and this is what I want you to know, perseverance are, are the birthright of every Christian. We need to be challenged by that, and we need to be encouraged by that. Challenged and encouraged. Christian, you must persevere. Christian, you will persevere. You will persevere. Okay, very briefly, what are the arguments for this? I'm going to read some Bible verses to you here. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you are on the path to eternal life, not that you have gotten started and I hope that you make it to the end, eternal life, but that you have, you have eternal life, eternal life. Now, I know that we often say in the church, eternal life, it's, 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 it's not just everlasting life, but it's, it's what you have right now in the present. Yes, that is true, but it's also everlasting life, right? If, if you have eternal life, you will live forever with Christ, with Christ. John chapter 6, this is Jesus talking. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, all those that God has given to me, none are going to slip through my fingers. Jesus' fielding percentage 1,000. He makes no errors. If you are in the hands of Jesus Christ, you are secure. Christian, you will persevere. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep 
hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I take it that included in the no one is me. I can't snatch myself out of the hands of Jesus. He's got me, thankfully, in a vice-like grip. And no matter how much I kick and and am frustrated and I push against, and I may even rebel, that if I am one of Jesus' sheep, he holds me in his hands and he will not let me go. Christian, you will persevere. Now, why is this? Because theologically... One does not simply walk into salvation, right? It's, it's, it, 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 it's not the kind of thing that you opt into with the implication that you can opt out like it's a, a club at a, at, at a gym where the membership privileges you can pick and choose from. No, those who are converted are regenerated. Those who are regenerated are converted, but there's far more. You are, you are saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. So, so, so this is not just a thing where, hey, that sounds really cool, I'm going to opt in. No, there's a lot more going on in salvation than just you repenting and believing. Now, there's not less, but there is way more. There is a process to salvation that has an end. Those who are saved are adopted into God's family. So then that brings up, the, so, so Christian, you will persevere, but also there's, there's this tension of Christian, you must persevere as well. And we'll look at some Bible verses to that end. Who, who does this work of perseverance? And I've already told you, we do, but so does God. We persevere. Christian, you must persevere. But because God is doing the persevering work, Christian, you will persevere. We know that salvation is of the Lord. We are justified by by grace through faith. God regenerates, God indwells, God glorifies. And and of course, we, we don't do any of those things. But there are some things that we do do in the process of salvation. That's evident from the very topic of this conference, from the topic of this talk, right? We, we convert, God regenerates, we repent, we believe, God converts us, but, but we, there, we, we do play a role in that, and, and I think Thomas did a great job of working through just the tension of uh, God grants us repentance and faith, but we actually have to repent, and we actually have to believe. Salvation is a work that, that has a beginning and an ending, and, and there are necessary steps along the way. And the, the fancy term that we give this is the order of salvation. And, 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 and Christians of goodwill disagree on just what that precise order is, but no Christian disagrees that there is an actual order. There is an order of salvation. And every step of the way is something that is part of this salvation process. That is, you can't pick and choose. Well, I I want regeneration, but I don't want sanctification. I want adoption, but I don't want glorification, right? That's not how it works. You are saved, and there are a lot of different aspects of salvation, and all of them are necessary. We're talking about perseverance, and so a big part of this is is sanctification. I, I, I read Philippians 2, 
12 through 13 to you earlier. Let, let me read it again. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my own presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We note we're told what to do and how to do it in this passage. What are we supposed to do? Work out your salvation. Now, it's, it helpfully doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say earn your salvation, but it does say work out. And, and the Greek word there conveys the idea of bring to accomplishment. It's about thoroughness and completeness. We, we work and we participate to bring our salvation to fullness. So Paul is saying, you have been saved. Now finish it. Now cross that finish line. Stay faithful. That's, that's what we're asked to do here. Work out your salvation. That's the command. But we're also told how to do it. We do so with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Okay, so, so, so what does this mean? To work with fear and trembling is, is not to work with apprehension or doubt or anxiety or concern about our destiny. No, to, to work with fear and trembling is to, to obey in, perhaps despite, our humanity. To, to work with fear and trembling is to work recognizing that we are mortal, finite humans. This is a phrase that, that Paul uses often in the New Testament, and he always has human frailty in view. And I would submit that we know this is the correct interpretation because of verse 13, the very next verse, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. We work out our salvation. We do so with fear and trembling, putting no confidence in ourself, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in our own humanity, knowing that God is the one who is working in us, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. The sovereign God is behind it all as the one who wills and works, and he does so according to his purposes, which are described as good. God's good purposes. So what are the guarantees? What are the guarantees? Am I, am I going to make it across the finish line? Well, yes, you are. Why? Because it is God who works in you. Philippians 1.6, earlier, Paul had told the church in Philippi, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, so Paul here picks up on a theme that we've We've been working on here. Salvation is process. And even though there are aspects in which we participate, God is participating in all of them. He's sovereign over the entire process. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because men, humans are weak. But Paul knows that God is not. So Paul was confident that the process of salvation that began with election in eternity past, and again, Christians of goodwill can disagree over the nature of, of election, but you ought not to disagree that God elected 
people in eternity past, because it like literally says that in the Bible, right? Literally says that. That this process that began in eternity past will inevitably result in your glorification. And again, God at the end of time will have batted 1,000. All those whom he started the process with will make it to the end. There's no remainder. There's no people whom, whom God started the process in and then didn't make it. And it's, again, fear and trembling, human frailty. It is not because of us. It is entirely because God perseveres. Nevertheless, Christian, you must persevere. To that end, we have all sorts of warning passages in the Bible. You know, those are the ones that are difficult, that no one really likes to preach. Or if you do like preaching them, you probably ought not to be preaching, right? Um, so Michael kindly gave me this topic this morning. Thank you uh, for that. Um, this raises the question, everything I've said, it raises the question, if, if God is sovereign over this entire affair, if he's actively working in it, and I've like lauded him for his perfect fielding percentage, why the commands? Why the commands to persevere in work? And, and then more significantly, why these passages that warn that your salvation can be lost? So let's, let's start with warning passages. We'll, we'll, we'll turn to the mother of all warning passages, Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 6. Just trying to give you your money's worth here this morning. Okay. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they're crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. So first off, just... Heed the words that describe the subjects of the passage here. Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the age to come. As I look at those words, to me, those sound like genuinely saved people. And, he's, and Paul says, don't fall away because it is impossible to restore someone like that. So you might think, yeah, but Todd, you've been sitting up here talking about God's perfect fielding percentage and that salvation is a process that we can't just opt out of. I've said God won't let any fall away. And if I've just said these are genuinely saved people, then what's the point of the warning? Now, so again, the Christians of goodwill disagree on the nature of these. And, you know, there, there's lots of different options, and I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't think they're right. Um, but... <laughs> That's okay, right? Just gotta, just, I, I just want you to know that, that you might disagree with me, and I'm not calling into question your sincerity or your, your faith or the legitimacy of, of, of any aspect of you. I just think you're wrong on this passage, so I'm going to tell you what, what I think it is. Um, okay. All right. So I, I'm, I'm just conceding there are different ideas out there. I just don't have, I don't have time. I got 10 minutes. I don't have time to even finish this one hardly. Um, the, 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 the warnings... Here's what I think. Here's, here's why I think these are genuinely saved people whom, who, the, not Paul, the, the writer of Hebrews, won't it be nice in the New Heavens and New Earth will actually know who wrote this thing? <laughs> so, won't it be lame if we meet at the gate some dude and he's got a, like, hello, my name is the author of Hebrews. And we're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I guess would be nice because we will have been, I, I guess I was right all along. And I did, I, I, I didn't realize. Okay. And so what is this author of Hebrews saying? Uh, what, what exactly is he saying? Um, I believe that these warnings are a means that God uses to keep his people persevering. I don't think it means that you can actually lose your salvation, but I think Paul is giving this, these warnings to actual believers and saying, if you fall away, you will not be saved. So don't fall away. But again, how does that work? If I've just gotten up here saying that no one can actually fall away. The warnings are a means that God uses to keep his people persevering. So that, that seems kind of pointless, doesn't it? If God keeps you from falling away, then what's the point of the warning? But I think there is a point to them. I think the warning can be legitimate even if God will not let you fall away and can be the means by which one of the means, not the only one, but one of the ways that he keeps you from falling away. Because remember, Christian, you must persevere. And one of the ways that he keeps you persevering is through these warnings. Let me illustrate. There have been a couple times when uh, Camille, my wife and I, we've taken our family to the Grand Canyon. And if you've been to the Grand Canyon before, you know that it's actually a very safe place to go if you don't do something stupid. Matter of fact, you can do lots of stupid things and it's still a safe place to go. There's defense in depth there. It's almost too safe, at least at the easiest access points to the rim. The place is next to the parking lot where you can go and you won't be going on too much of a trek, but you can still admire the beauty of the Grand Canyon. You can take that picture. That's where our family goes, especially when we had young kids. There are guardrails. There are warning signs everywhere about how dangerous the place is. You'd think that would be sufficient. Not for our family, because there's also my wife. So even as we're approaching the canyon, you can, my wife, you can just sense the anxiety in my wife. And she begins this litany of warnings. Don't get too close to the railing. Stay close to your dad. Keep a hold of my hand. And we haven't even gotten out of the car yet. <laughs> now, I want you to know, I want you to know that the chances of one of my kids getting close enough to the ledge to hurt themselves, to hurl themselves over, even if they could have climbed the railing, was less than zero. There was no chance, no chance that my wife was going to let our kids get anywhere near the railing, much less without holding her hand. And my wife is not omnipotent. She's not. But her, but her warnings were real and sincere. They were one of the means through which we kept our kids safe at the Grand Canyon. Does that make sense? There was no way they were going over the side. We were going to walk away from that time. But my wife had an iron vice-like grip on the hands of our kids 50 feet away from the ledge. <laughs> All the while saying, now don't get too close to the ledge. And my kids are like, you're hurting my hand. <laughs> we, we approach the canyon to enjoy the breathtaking beauty, the awesome majesty. We hear my wife recite warning after warning to them. And the only thing going through my mind is, I think this is how the warning passages in Hebrews works. <laughs> All right, so five minutes. 
I, I know this raises questions about people who have famously deconstructed their faith and walked away, people with seemingly flourishing ministries and compelling testimonies. And so I do, and Thomas alluded to this with the deconversion stories. What do we do with those? How can such a thing happen, given what I've just said about the biblical teaching, the nature of Christian salvation? Todd, I thought you said that, that God keeps us and ensures that we persevere. He has this fielding percentage of 1,000, right? Yes, I believe that with all my heart because I'm convinced that that is what the Bible teaches and the nature of Christian salvation demands it. So what about the evidence of these deconversion stories? Well, let me just say this. I hope, I hope, and, and when I'm on my game, I pray that those who, are decon who deconvert I pray that if they were actually Christians, that they will return someday. And, and I think that's entirely possible. I've seen that happen. It is also possible that they were never regenerated, adopted, sealed to begin with. I don't know. I don't know. I suspect that might be the case. But we have been subject to a litany of these, and I'm quite frankly, I'm tired of them. Not because they're not heartbreaking, because they are. Not because they have no effect on me, because they are a little discouraging and disappointing. No, I'm tired of them for two reasons. One, because the world watches and says, aha, we told you so. There's nothing all that cool about Christianity. There's nothing all that compelling about it after all. But I'm mostly tired of, of it for this reason, because shockingly, the church seems to be convinced that the world and these deconverters have a point. And to that, I ask, a point about what? That being a Christian is hard? Got a whole Bible full of that. That's not, that's not news. That following Jesus isn't easy. Jesus is the one who said, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self if you want to follow me. Jesus is not some bait and switch guy. He told us it was going to be hard. He told us people were going to hate us if we follow him. He, but he did say, rather encouragingly, just don't take it personally. It's a me thing, not a you thing. They hate you because they hate me. Also, Jesus warned us about such things. Parable of the sheep and the goats. There's going to be many who claim Jesus was their Lord, right? And furthermore, in that parable, people like, did remarkable things. Didn't we drive out demons in your name? I mean, that, that to me at least would present itself as one bona fide of legitimate Christian faith and ministry, driving out demons in the name of Jesus. And, and what are Jesus' chilling words? Depart from me, I never knew you. Not depart from me, I knew you and saved you, but then you walked away. Depart from me, I never knew you. So I think there's a category for this. I think there's a category for people who have seemingly flourishing ministries who, who abort, and Jesus would say, I never actually knew that one. All worldly, humanly, appearances to the contrary. And, and, and I'm frustrated with these deconversion stories because when they're told Christians, sometimes Christians respond by thinking, well, maybe there is actually something wrong with the Christian faith. Instead of responding like this, I think there's something wrong with that person. More importantly, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. We, we listen to like a Josh Harris or an Abraham Piper or a, a Rhett and Link, and, and we think maybe perhaps, gosh, they might have some insight rather than pursuing the wisdom of Jesus who warned us about such things. 
The proper response to a deconversion story is to listen to Paul's counsel in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Christian, if Jesus Christ is in you, you must persevere. If Jesus Christ is in you, you will persevere. You will. Why is perseverance necessary? Unless you persevere, you will not be saved. Twice in Matthew, Jesus warned, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you must persevere. It is, it is that serious. Sanctification must complete its work. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Paul wrote to Timothy, pay close attention to your life and your teaching, your doctrine. Persevere in these things. And he's talking to a minister, and he's encouraging him to persevere in ministry. But at the core foundation, that's persevere in the faith. Guard your life. Guard your doctrine. Evaluate your heart. Mind your doctrine. Mind your life. Be quick to repent. Don't stop believing it. I can't even say that without smiling. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. But Christian, you will persevere. Why? Why would I say that? Not because I have any confidence in you, but because Jesus said so. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, acknowledging that you are weak and that you are frail, but God is not. God is not. Why is perseverance important to pastoral ministry and life of the church? Well, because a, a major responsibility of the pastoral task is to encourage perseverance. That's why we gather as a body on Sundays to mutually encourage one another, to hear God's word preached, his good and precious promises, equipping people in a real sense, equipping the spirit. I don't, don't take that too far. But as we put the word of God into the minds and hearts of people, or, or at least into their minds, the spirit whose word is the sword, right? Who, or his sword is the word, takes that word that we preach, that we teach, that we mutually encourage one another with, the spirit takes that word and drives it deep into the heart, deep into the heart of his people. Exhort your congregations to stand firm on all that the Bible teaches, especially when the world questions that its wisdom. And so there's all sorts of admonitions here. First Peter 1, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 15, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Jesus Christ so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Christian, you must persevere. But praise God, Christian, you will persevere. Amen.